Thank you, Mike. It's good to have Paul back. He was away on vacation for a couple of weeks. And you can tell he was at the lake. He's got this suntan. Have you noticed that? A little additional suntan there in his face. Would you open your Bible, please, to the book of Hebrews? And today, to the 10th chapter of the book, as we continue our study about firming up our foundations. When we consider the foundational concerns of life, we think of things like faith and salvation, which we have talked about. But the one we're going to look at this morning may surprise some people. I believe it, too, is a crucial subject for us to talk about. However, what we're talking about is on the periphery of so many people's lives. It's considered by some secondary, as nice but not necessary, as an ancillary issue. But today I want to talk about the church as being one area of the foundation of our lives that many of us may need to firm up. I believe the attitude that most people have about the church is desperately in need of just that. For slippage has occurred that, humanly speaking, puts, the puts in jeopardy the work of Jesus Christ in the world. One denomination did a study a couple of years ago of its missions outreach. And the study showed them that if their current giving trends continued in that denomination, by the year 2000, they're going to have to recall most of their missionaries from the mission fields of the world. There is tremendous slippage regarding the place the church has in the lives of those who are God's people. We need to firm that up. Because this is important to God. Jesus Christ gave his life for the church. The sad fact is that some people don't give a rip for it. As long as the church is there to meet their needs on Sunday morning, they could care less about what happens in the church or with the church the rest of the time. That's because of worldliness. <clears throat> Now, I grew up in a time when worldliness was defined as four or five things you didn't do. How well the devil fooled us in those years as to what worldliness is. Worldliness is not difficult to figure out. It's not four or five things that Christians ought not to do. Worldliness is an attitude. Worldliness is adopting the value system of the present order that controls the world. That present order is created by and dominated by none other than Satan. He has instilled into the world system certain values and worldliness in the lives of Christians is the adopting of those attitudes. We see it in secularism, for example. 
Our world is secular in the sense that it tries to rule God out up front. As a presupposition, God isn't important in our world. And tell me if that attitude hasn't crept into the lives of some Christians. God is important as long as he saves me from hell, but beyond that, I wish God would get out of my way. I've got too many things I want to do. Our world is given to the value of materialism. Where material things are all important, there is little or no emphasis or attention given to spiritual things. Has that affected any Christians that you might know? Where all the money is spent on material things, all of the time is spent on things here and now, very little thought, very little emphasis in the life on what comes next, on what is spiritual. The values of the world are not only secular and material, but they're also individual. Individualism is one that has developed in the last couple of decades in the West. It puts the priority in whatever is satisfying to oneself. There is no need of anybody else. And so we just close ourselves and our family up, and we're just ourselves. Individualism. The Bible's value is interdependence. But I tell you that individualism has swept into the church of Jesus Christ as a worldly value. Consumerism. We all understand what consumers are like in the world. But the attitude of consumerism has crept into the church as well. I want the church to meet my needs. And if it doesn't, I'm going to go shopping somewhere else where a church will meet my needs. So people look at the church as consumers. And the last one I want to mention I just did mention it. I thought I had five. I only got four. I had one other one in mind, but I couldn't put a title on it. The church is at once taken for granted, and practically speaking, it's ignored. People want the church to be there when they need it, but they do not want the church to expect any commitment from them. They want the church to inspire them with heavenly music and entertaining preaching. But please don't confront me with my sin or call for repentance. They want the church to offer a wide array of programming without even having to pay for it. If the church doesn't measure up, they look around or worse, worse, they decide to go to two or three or four churches and select what offerings they want from those two or three or four churches, they treat the church like a smorgasbord. So when I think today about firming up the foundation, 
I don't think there's anything really more critical than our attitude about the church of Jesus Christ. Our text today is in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, where we'll begin reading and read through verse 25. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. <clears throat> let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. The day drawing near, of course, is the day of our Lord's return. And he says, as we see the sky brightening in the east, as the dawn is about to break, we are to be sure to be committed to the church. The church is the house of God, as the writer of Hebrews puts it. Look at verse 21. We have a great priest over the house of God. That isn't the first time that phrase has occurred in Hebrews. Go back to Hebrews chapter 3 for a moment where there's a contrast between Moses and Jesus. He is showing here the superiority of Jesus. He says, Therefore, my holy, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. Now he's saying that Moses had a house, and he's going to say that Jesus had a house. Now he's not talking about a structure, a dwelling, he's talking about a family. We might say a household. He says Moses was faithful in his household. That was Israel, of course. Verse 3, For he, Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of these things, which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. You see, Moses was faithful in the house. He was a part of the household. Jesus is faithful over his household, the superiority. He's God, the one who created the house. He was faithful, it says. And then he goes on to say, 
whose house we are. We. We're his household. The Israelites of old were the household of Moses. He was faithful as their leader. He was a member of the house. He is commended for his faithfulness. But far greater than Moses is Jesus, who created the house and who is over the house, who is faithful as an apostle and high priest. And we are his house. We, the church, we're his house. He says, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Now, he's not doubting necessarily that the people he's writing to or that we will not hold fast. But the point he's making is the same one that we made last week when we talked about salvation. And that is our genuineness is proven by our continuance. Not by some date we've written down in the Bible, not by some prayer that we prayed at some point, but the genuineness, the authenticity of our salvation is demonstrated by our continuance in the faith. And there may be times of lapse, there may be times when we backslide, but inevitably God will discipline us and bring us back because all of his sons, he disciplines like a faithful father and brings us back. And we continue on. We are the house of God. Now let's go back to Hebrews chapter 10. The local church is the expression of the house of God in the world. Today there's no, no temple of stone but there is a temple of redeemed people, living stones, that are being built together by God and indwelt by the Holy Spirit to make the temple of God. The church is the center of what God is about in the world, in this age. What a thrilling thing that God has called us to be a part of what He's doing in the world. God is at work in the world, and He is at work in and through His church. It is an exciting thing to be called out by God from the world to be a part of his task force to go back to the world to represent him. It is an exciting thing to be a part of the temple that God is building in this age in honor to himself, a temple in which the Spirit dwells. But we know, all of us know, how imperfect the church is yet, for it still exists, as we know it, in this fallen world. Jesus is preparing his bride for her heavenly calling, but she still has spots to be removed and wrinkles to be smoothed out. We all know that. The church is not a perfect place. Someone said to me last week, the church is full of hypocrites. Well, of course it is. Can you think of a better place for hypocrites to come and get healed? There are hypocrites in the church. There are hypocrites in the world. There are hypocrites everywhere. The church is still in a fallen world. The church is not perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. But we are God's house. That's why it's important that we firm up the foundation of our lives with regards to the church. 
I say this with conviction, that our commitment to the church parallels our commitment to Jesus Christ. Now, I've been in the ministry 26 years. And in those 26 years, I have yet to meet a Christian who was deeply devoted to Jesus Christ and had little time for the church. Now, to be honest with you, I have met people who were deeply devoted to the church and were not too devoted to Christ. And that's not right either. But I have never met a Christian who was devoted to Jesus Christ's lordship in his life and who was laissez-faire regarding his commitment to the church. Our commitment to Jesus Christ parallels our commitment to the church. The two line up. Therefore, we need to firm up that commitment. In the text that we've looked at this, today, this morning, we see that the commitment to the church involves three duties that every one of us has as a part of the church, the house of God. I think it was J. Vernon McGee who called this one of God's gardens. He says, this is the lettuce garden. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider. Here we have the three duties that all of us have to the church. As part of God's house, you and I are to worship God corporately. Now today we have this emphasis on individualism. Well, I'll worship God out there at the cabin by the lake, sitting on the rock. And of course you can worship God there. You can worship God anywhere. But the writer of Hebrews says, let us draw near. He doesn't say, let each one of you draw near in his own way, his own time, his own place. He says, let us draw near. Part of our commitment to the church has to be this, that we worship God together as a body of people. It is a household duty that we have as God's family, that we worship Him in association with others now, the whole basis of this is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We can draw near because it says in verse 19 that we may enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. He has inaugurated for us, that is, he has dedicated for us the way to God. It is the sacrifice of his own body. Just as there was a veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place in the temple. So Jesus came veiling the glory of God inside of him. And that veil was broken. It was rendered. It was sacrificed. And in the sacrifice of his body, the way to the Holy of Holies was opened up for us. And that was symbolized, wasn't it, by the, the veil in the temple being torn from the top to the bottom when he died. So the whole basis of our worshiping together is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the sufficiency of his blood shed on the cross of Calvary for our sins. And because of that, he says that we are a priesthood. 
of Jesus Christ. He says, we have a great priest. We are priests who serve under a great priest, the high priest, Jesus Christ. And because he is in heaven today in his glorified body, interceding on our behalf before the throne of God, we may come together here and worship. And it says that we have been made fit to do this, for our hearts have been sprinkled clean, our bodies washed with pure water. These are the symbolic kinds of language relating to the temple worship. But what he's saying is that we are fully qualified to worship God, to come into his presence. And so we're to come, he says, with a sincere heart, a true and genuine heart. In contrast to the way Israel at times worshipped. In fact, Isaiah, in the first chapter, if you begin reading about verse 10 and following through that chapter, it strikes you how that God rejects all of the rituals that he himself had ordained for the Jews. He said, I've had enough sacrifices. I don't want any more observances. I don't want any Passovers. I don't want this. I don't want that. Why? Because their hearts were far from God. They were just going through the, the, the deal, see? Just going through the rituals. And God says, don't even bother with it. We are to come together for worship with hearts that are sincere that are involved sincerely in what we're doing. It does us no good, and God is not pleased if we come to church just to go through the motions. We need to come to church with intention. To come with purpose. And that purpose being that we will enter into God's presence with others and offer praise to him. So he says, let's draw near, but be sure with sincere heart and also with full assurance of faith. We're to be completely engrossed with an expectation of God's promises. But I fear that for some Christians, worship is at best half-hearted and at worst lifeless, faithless, merely routine. <clears throat> so as we think about firming up our commitment to the church, let's begin here at this point and recognize that it involves coming to worship God corporately with others. How you doing? Does your life need to be firmed up? Is the foundation where it ought to be? regarding your worship of God with others and coming to church with a right heart attitude and expecting God to do something in you. Now secondly, he says, we have a duty as God's house to weather our tribulations patiently. He says, let's hold fast a, the confession of our hope without wavering God's faithful. You and I are promised in the world a good deal of affliction. We are told by God to expect tribulation. 
2 Timothy 3.10 says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. <clears throat> doesn't necessarily mean persecuted all the time. But there will be seasons of persecution for those who will live godly. Peter joins in and says, Do not be surprised. The implication there is that of uh, an astonished resentment. Peter says, Don't be surprised and resentful at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange, that is, some foreign thing were happening to you. Peter says, That's the norm. The fire is the norm. The quiet times, the times of peace when there's no persecution, that's the unusual. Then Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, and he's writing here to a persecuted church, you yourselves know, he says, that we have been destined for afflictions. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. Affliction means hardship. It means pressure. If you're a member of God's house, you're going to have pressure in the world. Jesus himself said, in the world you shall have what? Tribulation. But he went on to say, but be of good cheer, for I have what? I've overcome the world. He said, the world is going to put its pressure on, but remember, I, I'm, I'm the conqueror. I'm the victor of the world. But he said, you will experience trouble. Some of you are. We have one man in our church who periodically updates us on the pressure that he's facing at work because of his Christian commitment and asks us for our prayers. Some of you know what that's about. If not today, you have in the past experienced what we're talking about here. Now we should count that as an honor. In fact, doesn't Paul say that? He says, rejoice that you're counted worthy to suffer shame for his name's sake. Well, that's a different perspective, isn't it? We're worthy of suffering for Christ. What an honor. And the writer of Hebrews joins in with this now, and he says, now listen, as part of the household of God, weather your tribulations patiently. Hang in there. Hold fast. There will be times when you will be tempted to turn around and walk the other direction. The pressure against you is going to you want to be carried downstream with it. But keep swimming upstream. He says, weather. Hold fast. Endure patiently the tribulations that come upon you as a believer. Those are times when Satan tries to get us to compromise. When we're under pressure, he comes to us whispering 
how sweet it would be just to lay off a little bit, to retract our confession of faith, to submit to the peer pressure. And let's not kid ourselves, teenagers aren't the only ones who have peer pressure. He comes to us inviting us to escape the disapproval of society by taking this route. But God's word says, hold fast. Don't give up. Don't take the compromising way out. Rejoice that you can suffer for Jesus as part of God's house. Are you willing to do that? We're talking about commitment now to the church of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> are, you firming, are you willing to firm up that foundation of your life and be willing to suffer with the church? The church has always suffered and always will, as long as it's in this world. Now there's a third duty that he gives us as a part of God's house, and that is that we are to weigh our actions responsibly. He says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. He says, let's weigh carefully. Let's observe. Let's, let's contemplate. That takes time, doesn't it? It takes effort. But this is part of what we're about. He says, now, let's consider how to stimulate one another. How does the King James put it? Does anybody have it here this morning? Provoke. How to provoke one another. Some of us have misunderstood this term. We have taken the King James literally. The word here can have the meaning of irritating. And let's face it, there are some Christians who are irritating. But that isn't what he's talking about here. He's talking here about inciting, stirring up, encouraging, raising up people. To what? Well, to love and good deeds. You see, we are to sharpen each other. We are to encourage each other. To love God and love others and be involved in doing good in the world. Now, how do we do that? Well, first by doing it ourselves. We have to set an example and then we take a hold of the hands of other people and we say, Come on! We need to firm up this part of our foundation. You see, we have a responsibility for others. This goes back to this idea of individualism again. Well, you know, I wouldn't do that, but if that's their choice. Sounds great. The only problem is it's not biblical because we are to be concerned about others. How many one another's are there in the New Testament? Twenty-some? Pray for one another, build up one another. Here he says stimulate one another. And he says, encourage one another. I got a little chuckle, frankly, this last uh, 
a couple of months. As we noted in our bulletin on Sundays that the elders are going to be discussing church discipline. And there were some people in our church, and I don't know who they were, and if it was you, I don't know who you are, so you don't have to be embarrassed. But I found it a little amusing to me, in a perverse sort of way, that there were people who said, well, what are they trying to do here? Create a police state? Isn't that an interesting attitude? You see, there is such a thing as church discipline. Where the body watches out for one another. And it begins so very simply, as Galatians 6.1 says, if you see anyone overtaken in a fault, in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore them. Checking your own attitude. Checking your own life. You see, we have a responsibility individually for one another. Church discipline begins with one member who lovingly goes to another member and says, My brother, my sister, I'm concerned about you. You see, worldliness says, ah, That's their choice. You wouldn't do it, but let them have their way. No. If it's dangerous, if it will hurt them, we care about them. And so we go to them. And of course, the theology of church discipline goes beyond that. The other extreme of it is when one is involved in some public gross sin that is bringing disgrace to Christ and to the church and, and will not repent, although pleaded with then that one is to be removed from the church. But I just found it interesting when just the idea of church discipline was being discussed that there would some who would react that way, so typically American, so sadly unchristian, biblically illiterate. Because the Bible says that we have responsibility for one another. And we need to firm up that part of our foundation. We need to seek others' good. We need to realize that we are interdependent. And under the same thought, he tells us here that we are to not forsake our own assembling together. <clears throat> As the habit of some, he says. Even then, in the uh, third quarter of the first century, only 40 years or so after Jesus had been on the earth and died and rose again and went back to heaven, there were some whom he says were forsaking the assembling of the believers. This word assembling together is where we get the English word synagogue, the Jewish meeting, the synagogue. It means to come together, to assemble together in one place. But it doesn't mean just to come together in one place on an occasion. But it means to do that as a habit and as a custom. And so we are to set priorities in our lives that are God-centered. 
Assembling here doesn't just mean coming to church. That would be easy enough. But the whole thrust of this idea of synagogue is being involved in going the same direction. It means being involved in the mission of it all. To have heart and soul in in what's taking place in the meeting. And what he says is that even in that day, and remember this is the day when there was a Laodicea, and a Thyatira and those other churches that Jesus wrote to in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. In those days, there were believers who just weren't with it. They had other priorities in life. Other things are more important than what God was doing in the world. Other things took priority over the church. And so they were forsaking The word forsaking here is used in some literature of betraying one's loyalty. It's the kind of a word that you would use of Benedict Arnold, who forsook the United States by his actions. It's a very strong word. And so the writer is saying... Don't forsake the assembling. Don't forsake the being together with a mission. Don't betray God's cause in the world, is what he's saying. Don't turn against what God is doing in his church. As the habit of some is. In the lives of many Christians... The place of the church is firmly in place. I thank God for them. I thank God for the people of Grace Church Roseville in whom that is true. Who understand what the church is, what it's about. Who understand their place in the church. Who are deeply committed to it. And whose hearts are knit together in the assembling. But I weep for those who do not understand that. And I believe the Lord weeps. I have my very expensive Casio watch on today. I pulled out my dress Timex a couple of days ago to wear it to an occasion, and it wasn't working. So I picked it up and shook it, and it started moving. So I set it down and thought, well, maybe it's just one of those things. Maybe I healed it or something and touching it. So I just left it there and came back a little bit later, and it had stopped again. It stopped again. So yesterday, yes, it was yesterday that I took it to a local store to get a battery put in. And uh, they took the old battery out and tested it, and they said, hmm, this is very strange. Part of this battery says it's fine, and part of the battery says, eh. But it looks like it ought to still be good. And I said, well, here's what the watch is doing. I'll tell you what, let's just put a new battery in and hope that that takes care of it. 
<clears throat> so we did. And this morning, I pulled out my dress, Timex, to put on my wrist, and it wasn't working. It stopped at 2.20 this morning. You know what I'm going to have to do? I don't know, do you repair a Timex? You probably send it in with $100 to cover the shipping and handling, and they will repair it, I suppose. I'm probably going to end up getting a new dress Timex. Because you just can't have a watch that runs part of the time. You can't trust a watch that runs occasionally. Do you think there's any application there to us as part of God's family? Do you think God needs the members of his household to be faithful? Do you think he expects to be able to count on us? Well, of course he does. Of course he does. And that's why I need to talk about this this morning. That's why it's important for you and me to think about firming up the foundation of our lives in the area of the church and ask ourselves the tough question, what is my commitment to this church? What is my commitment to this church? How do I measure it? How do I measure my commitment? But then the most important question, how does the Lord measure my commitment. And when we've begun answering those questions in our hearts, then we'll be at work firming up this foundation. Let's pray. Please sing with me. In my life, Lord, be glorified. Be glorified in my life, Lord. Be glorified today. Would you stand, please? And let's sing in our church, Lord. In our church, Lord. Be glorified, be glorified in our church, Lord. Be glorified. Lord, we have sung our prayer. And we pray that you will be glorified in your church by the commitment of our lives to your Lordship. I pray that you will guard us from allowing the foundation to erode. Help us to see, Lord, where it needs to be firmed up. And especially today as we think about where it needs to be firmed up in regards to the church the household of God, which house we are. And as we go from here, may we determine in our hearts 
to do whatever we need to do under your lordship to be sure that that foundation is well built and stays in place especially as we see the day drawing near amen god bless you